This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Change is afoot in New Jersey. Last month, the voters elected as their new governor, Phil Murphy, a Democrat. He replaces a Republican, Chris Christie, who was term limited and could not run for re-election. And in Newark, there is change coming as well because the state of New Jersey is returning to the city of Newark the responsibility for managing its school districts. Scandals in Newark produced legislation giving the state the authority over the schools over the past 20 years. Now all of that is coming to an end, and with that change, Christopher Cerf, who was the state superintendent for the Christie administration for four years and then subsequently took on the job in Newark itself for three years, and was arguably the most successful of all the school superintendents in Newark, is going to be moving on. So I'm very fortunate to have Chris Cerf with me to reflect on his experiences in Newark and discuss the impact on the students of the city of this latest change in school governance and what he feels are some of his accomplishments during his tenure there. So Chris, it's a great pleasure to have you with me on the Education Exchange. So what do you say is your most signal accomplishment over the last three years or seven years? Because sure. I know it's been both in both roles, you've been playing a critical role. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you today, uh, Paul. Uh, I think we always have to start conversations like this uh, with asking ourselves, what what is success? Why do we sort of you know, gird for battle, go in, do the things we do in the sort of school world, the school reform world, and so on? Uh, and for me, the answer is very simple. That is that, um, you know, we live in a country where equality of opportunity uh, is the sort of signature uh, issue found in all our um, founding documents and that uh, public education is meant to catalyze that value by allowing everybody uh, a shot at success in life regardless of their birth circumstances. So there are a lot of other things implicated in public education, but I measure success very simply. That is, every year are more and more children given access to a free quality public education that launches them successfully uh, into adulthood. So you ask, uh, what is my greatest accomplishment? And I need to characterize it by saying, what is our greatest accomplishment? Because there are an awful lot of fine people, teachers, parents, students, my predecessor, uh, elected officials who have really put their shoulder to the wheel on this. And what I would say is the work of the last six years has been an unequivocal success by the measure I think counts. Just a couple of facts and figures for you. Our um, Graduation rate um, hovered in the high 50% in 2010 when we began this work. We just announced it's at 78%. That is uh, an extraordinary uh, accomplishment. Uh, we uh, started out in essentially the bottom quartile compared to the uh, 37 other districts in New Jersey that are demographically most comparable. Now we're in the um, 81st and 82nd in reading, uh, reading and math. We have seen tremendous narrowing of the achievement gap by, by any measure. Our growth metric, we call it student growth percentile, uh, shows us that we are now actually um, equal to the state average. 
three times as many African-American students go to schools that beat average, uh, beat the state average. And New Jersey's no slouch, by the way. New Jersey, uh, like Massachusetts, is always at the very top. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, New Jersey's one of the top performing yeah, right, states. Right. So uh, if you And you said you narrowed the gap between considerably, New York? Considerably. And indeed, if you look at our park scores, which is the summative assessment used by uh, New Jersey and seven or eight other jurisdictions, uh, our students are outpacing entire states on the park uh, performance. And if you look at every other city in America that has 2,000 or more free and reduced price children, if you look at every one of those cities, Denver, D.C., Albuquerque, and so on, Newark is outpacing literally all of them. And so our greatest accomplishment, I think, is measured in the sort of academic um, outputs that I've been describing. Well, that's that's all very exciting. So what would you say are some of the critical levers that were pushed by you and your colleagues over this period of time that has contributed to these outcomes? So I think the first one is conviction. Um, and the conviction uh, really is organized around the value that we began with, Paul, meaning if you state as your highest value in this work, you know, harmony and consensus, um, you're going to follow a very different path than we followed. Um, if you state as your highest uh, value anything else uh, other than, edu than educational outcomes, you're going to follow a very different path. And by the way, there are other legitimate values out there. There's the value of local control. There's democratic values. There's the values of facilitating the melting pot. There's the value of avoiding arbitrary decisions by, uh, on behalf of employees. These are all legitimate. But uh, we stated as our central value, and we stuck with it, that we were going to do whatever it took to try to give more and more kids um, a, a chance at life. So we have three basic levers um, and a lot of um, subparts to each one of those. One is um, I deeply believe uh, that you need to empower parents with the opportunity to choose what is best for their child's education. And therefore, we um, created a very different array of schools from which to choose. We closed about 13 uh, schools about a, a third of which were charter schools, incidentally, schools that were not succeeding for children. Um, we uh, created a system of universal enrollment where every parent was not consigned uh, to his or her neighborhood school, but had the opportunity to choose among charter schools, traditional public schools, um, magnet schools, et cetera. And um, we uh, is saw- Is this for the elementary as well as middle and high school? It is. It's elementary, middle, and high school. Every every child has the opportunity to, 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 to choose. But is the neighborhood school, are people in the neighborhood given first choice yeah. on their neighborhood school, or how, how do you handle that? So like Denver, there is, uh, I call them neutral business rules. We took all politics out of it. I don't take calls anymore from city council people or elected officials saying, hey, can you get my uh, constituent's kid into this school or that school? Uh, the neutral rules uh, prioritize siblings first. If you already have a sibling at a school, you get a priority. It prioritizes neighborhood second. Um, uh, but it also then prioritizes sort of equalizing special ed distribution. And so it has, there, there are, it's called an algorithm. That's not the, the most popular word out there, but they're sort of a neutral rule. And it's very similar to what is happening in Denver. And, in, and, and a then number. do you use a lottery for ties or w when these things don't 
aren't decisive? Um, there basically are no ties <laughs> the, way, the, the way it works because it goes down to eight or nine rules, rules of decision. Yeah. Um, the problem is that we have uh, a number of schools that are uh, very much um, in demand and a number of schools that are not. And so you do have a supply and demand disequilibrium, and that gets complicated and sometimes gets uh, a, a little bit heated. And so, our again, our first principle is to uh, honor parents' choices wherever we can. And our second principle is if we can't honor the choice, to give them their second or third choice, but to never let uh, politics or favoritism or, frankly, which parents are most together, right? In the olden days, people would stand outside of a popular school like you were standing uh, waiting to get into a rock concert, first come, first serve, and we, we've ended uh, all of that. Uh, interesting statistics, Paul. Um, uh, our charter schools now serve about 33% of the students in Newark, up from about 10%. Um, so how, how, over what period of time did that change from 10 to 33%? Uh, from 2011 to today. So in the past six years. Yes. So the demand for charter schools has been high. Very high. 47% of our parents uh, who participate in this universal en uh, enrollment system uh, place a uh, charter school as their first choice. What percentage? Say 47%. 47%. So there's about 14% then who are not going to get that choice, even though that Correct. would be their first choice. So do you see this expanding then, that charter schools will continue to expand beyond the 33% that they currently so are? So I'm, I'm going to tell you what I hope. I hope that we have transcended a world where people focus on how a school came into being or its governance structure and focus uniquely on the quality of the school. That has been my mantra from the very, very beginning. And um, you know, I'm pushing a very heavy rock up a pretty steep hill here because in this very charged world of school politics, uh, there are an awful lot of people who focus on things other than quality. They want they focus on whether a school is traditional, whether a school is is um, selective, i.e., a magnet school, whether a school is is a charter school. And I have taken the position, by the way, when I was deputy chancellor in New York as well, that we should be indifferent to that because parents are different different uh, to that. So um, I. I'm a Democrat. I could guess I could say that, uh, even though I work for Republicans. Uh, I work for Bloomberg, if he counts. Bipartisanship <laughs> is not in fashion, Mr. Sir. It is not. <laughs> I was in Chris Christie's cabinet, and we were very much aligned on educational matters, by the way. And, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, really should take something of a victory lap around what he did in the realm of, edu of education. Um, uh, but uh, I am... Um, you know, am I worried now that the sort of rhetoric and the propaganda and the interest group politics are going to be ascendant in New Jersey? I'd be an idiot not to be worried about that. But as a Democrat, I have this deep optimism, I hope not a naive optimism, that a new Democratic governor, um, who after all represents the party of progress, represents the party of um, supporting the, the poor and the dispossessed against other forces that have held them down historically, will make all judgments based uh, first and foremost on their interests and not on the 
talking points issued by uh, the teachers union. But one of the talking points is that when you get charter schools that are serving about a third of the kids within a community, this is having an impact on the district schools, that the, 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 the students and families that are more committed to education end up one way or another getting into the charter schools. The resources aren't there for the district schools. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any evidence? I mean, how have you, I'm sure you've tried to keep that from happening, mm -hmm. but is that a, a problem that you have to attend to? Well, um, I would say the answer is yes, it is a problem we all have to attend to. And there's, I'm going to slice the question into a couple pieces. The first one is an economic piece, all right? And that is, you know, one of the talking points is that traditional schools are being drained or the charters drain traditional schools of resources. Um, I'm very troubled by that argument on two fronts. One is charter schools are public schools, so there's something sort of uh, paradoxical about the point to start with. Charter schools are open to all. They're unlike, by the way, public magnet schools, which seem to draw no fire. Uh, they're open to all. They're um, uh, free. They're um, subject to democratically accountable authorities. The only thing they're not is joined at the hip to a traditional school board. Um, so the problem is flawed at that level. But there is some basic truth to this reality, and I've lived it from the other side here, is that districts uh, have a body of what I call fixed and legacy costs that are essentially inescapable. Uh, Pensions, the health care benefits for the retired? Sure, or something as fundamental as the superintendent's salary or the light bulbs in the central office. But, but but there are also things like you know, we've, the iron law, uh, which I know you've written about, but there are uh, uh, collective bargaining agreements that run for multiple years with guaranteed raises. There, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a thing, right? Uh, there's a huge expense for very high-need special education kids, which the district bears, and depending on the formula, not the traditional uh, public school. There's a range of expenses. So if you simply transferred... Um, every time a child left the traditional school and went to a charter uh, public school, he or she took in his backpack the operating cost that previously went to the traditional school, it would be very problematic. But that's not how it works, um, although it was profoundly mischaracterized in the Massachusetts charter debate recently. I'll tell you how it works in, in New Jersey. For every dollar that goes... Uh, to um, a charter school, the district actually retains 10% of it. So essentially, the district's mission is to limit its fixed and variable cost to 10% of its operating budget. And that seems to me to be a reasonable and, a, and an achievable goal. Well, who picks up the pension costs? Is that a separate item in the in handled by the state, or is that so, uh, is that part of this 10%? It's not part of the 10% in New Jersey. In one of the uh, great uh, political achievements of the unions in New Jersey, uh, the state pays the pensions. So they essentially took pensions out of collective bargaining on the local level. We have 580 districts. So you can imagine that issue might be dealt with differently uh, across the district. And essentially covered it at the state level. It doesn't quite look that way on the state books, but essentially it's a non-bargainable consideration that is covered. And the, the political logic of that is... Uh, they have such an iron uh, control over the state legislature, it's easier to avoid um, 
uh, variations from their agenda if it does that. And way. is that true of the health care benefits as well? Not as not as true. It's their slices the, of it, but but no. those are constantly rising. They are constantly rising. And do the charter school teachers get the same health care benefits as the district school teachers, or do you see a differential? They they handle health care you know, independently. Pensions they have the right to carry their pensions with them. But you're you're right, the healthcare benefits are, you know, actually take us to back to the point that we were um, on just seconds ago. And that is when I got here three years ago, I understood that we needed to bring our variable costs (laughs) uh, to a much much higher level. But I faced about $150 million deficit or shortfall. And so among other things we did is we changed our healthcare benefits program. We changed our prescription benefit card program. We sold a bunch of uh, buildings that were no longer in use. So we, we closed that gap completely and, and balanced the budget by doing things like renegotiating bus contracts and taking some of these things that people kind of assume are fixed and say, well, actually, they don't need to be fixed if we come at it creatively. All right. Well, now I'm going to shift a little bit and talk about the Uh, things that you have done to strengthen the teaching force, because after all, Mm -hmm. the teacher in the classroom is the most important school factor affecting children. And as you said, you know, educational outcomes is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. So if it's all about educational outcomes, you want the best possible teachers in those classrooms. So what are some of the things you've done to, to move Newark and the positive direction in that in that area? Uh, we uh, hypothesized based on the research premise that you correctly articulate that um, everything else is rounding error if we don't have quality and effective teachers in, in the classroom. I mean, I'm overhead. You can have this reading program or that reading program, but without really effective teachers, um, it's not going to make the difference it needs to make. So we did a, a number of things. Um, one is we uh, negotiated a nation-leading collective bargaining uh, agreement. And we, there was a brief uh, interlude of peace uh, in which Randy Weingarten and I and others were spent really months Randy at, at the Randy Weingarten table. being the head of the American Federation of Teachers. Well, she's Great. not in Newark. How, where does she come into this? Um, she and I had worked together in uh, New York City when she was the head of the UFT, uh, the State Teacher Union. We had... Um, um, bargained over. I, I was deputy chancellor there, and I oversaw labor relations. And we had uh, bargained, and we had a um, professional relationship and a personal relationship. So I brought her in uh, to Newark, and she sort of stepped in, and we negotiated a contract um, that had some features that you just don't see anywhere else. The first was that um, there would not be automatic uh, raises in the, in the traditional contract. Um, you get a raise um, automatically if you have added another year of service. And we said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to pre-negotiate the sort of steps, but we're going to say one only goes up a step if the teacher is rated effective. And uh, and we put in place a very rigorous educator evaluation system. And I will tell you that uh, there's a lot of national press about how a lot of these laws didn't work, um, that most districts are still finding 96, 97, 98% of their teachers effective. That's not true in Newark. We ended up having, depending on the year, 14 to 17% of our teachers under this very rigorous system identified as below effective. Um, and well, that's, that's important mm-hmm. because if, if teachers know that there's a significant chance that they will be rated as not effective mm-hmm. and that's going to affect their step increase, then they're going to want to 
be sure that they're doing whatever they can to get the salary yeah. increase they would like to have. But now, how do you evaluate them? How do you decide whether they're effective? Well, we, um, uh, when I was commissioner, uh, and again, this seems uh, otherworldly, but uh, uh, we sponsored a um, uh, tenure reform law that um, made some pretty substantial changes, not least of which is it said you didn't get tenure until after four years of service. And it imposed an educator evaluation system that had to take into account at least some measure of uh, student growth or student 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 outcomes. So there is, uh, and then the balance is done through very sort of disciplined standards-based um, observations that have to take place. Uh, in the olden days, they were more theory than practice. Um, and I, the other thing that uh, may be worth saying, Paul, is that uh, on the basis of these evaluations, we brought uh, nearly 250 tenure charges. And by way of comparison, um, the prior 10 years in Newark, I think there were three or four tenure charges brought. And uh, just about three quarters of those individuals um, are no longer with the district. Um, so I also want to say I am not at all convinced that teachers teach better or behave differently because of the prospect of negative consequences. I think most people go to work every day and care deeply and work hard, but what we are in denial about nationally is that there is a natural distribution of efficacy in this profession that looks like a bell curve, just like there is for professors, like superintendents, like lawyers, like architects, like anybody else. And it is almost a iron law of, of HR that um, there are going to be um, most people in the broad middle and some people excel and a handful of people who don't, right? So a system that literally denies that basic reality is not going to um, you know, deal with the fact that some people are not successful. Right, and it's discouraging for others mm -hmm. when they see mm -hmm. colleagues who are not effective and they remain there. And so when you see in a, an administrative structure that's actually addressing that mm -hmm. problem, I think it raises the morale for the whole, I agree. whole team. I agree. And one piece of evidence of that when, and, um, is that 95% of our effective and highly effective teachers chose to return to work in the Newark Public Schools last year. That's a staggering uh, uh, figure. We opened the school year with 99% of our vacancies filled with, um, with uh, appropriately certified, uh, subject certified content uh, certified teachers. Well, all of this is good news, mm -hmm. Chris, but I... Mm -hmm have read this book about Newark, which talked about the Zuckerberg grant of $100 million, which said it was all squandered and there was no benefits that came from that. Uh, this is a responsible reporter. It spent a lot of time working on it. Um, am I, um, is that the past or should he have waited longer to make an assessment or? How do you respond to that? So, uh, uh, that so I uh, first of all, yeah. Dale is a responsible reporter. It's a beautiful book, uh, and it has lots of very important lessons uh, uh, in it. It was also, in my judgment, a pretty irresponsible book in, uh, in in a number of ways. First and fundamentally, to sort of call the game in the very early innings, you know, flies in the face of years of school reform research that says. It takes time uh, for these reforms to, 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 to settle in. And I'd be curious what her perspective is now, but um, now that we have the results that we talked about at the beginning here, you know, I don't think there's anyone who could take the position that you just 
characterized that most people take from her book, that it was squandered. I think it, was, it unequivocally succeeded. Now, there were lots of issues. It wasn't a linear progression and a lot of mistakes. And, you know, um, the only thing that I think would have guaranteed failure in this was to continue doing what we were doing uh, and not take a chance on making some of these big reforms. The second thing, it sort of came out of the box with a and I say this as someone who uh, you know, grew up in a liberal community and, 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 um, lives, uh, and lives in a liberal community, there are sort of certain tropes uh, that are sort of accepted as the sort of received wisdom in the, forgive me, the New Yorker, NPR you know, crowd that she really was, was writing to. And they're, they're odd, but one of them is that the private sector is evil. Um, the other is that consultant is a malediction uh, and, um, and, and, the, and the like. And she really fell prey to that in lots of different ways. For example, a tiny fraction of the money went to consultants. Um, and many of those consultants uh, did incredible work, like the, the New Teachers Project, Teach for America, uh, and others. Some of them. Um, didn't. Um, we didn't get the value of our money, uh, but it was like a minimal percentage of the this $200 million. But those gift. make the best stories. They make the best stories. And reporters, look, I can't go on a book tour. I can't go on to go to 50 cities and be invited to 50 conferences to talk about this. But when you write a book like that, you do go on a book tour and you broadcast it out and you measure your success by the number of people who buy your book. And um, that's you know, that's just the way the media works. Uh, we just very quietly did the hard work of school reform and changed, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives. Well, Chris, it's been great having this opportunity to talk with you at a point in your career where you're in this period of transition and you can reflect back on your accomplishments. And uh, I, I find the, the tale you have to tell about Newark uh, encouraging, and that's very important in these days when we need a lot of encouraging news. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange, uh, Chris Cerf. Uh, Chris Cerf is the superintendent at the Newark school system who is just stepping down. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. It's been my pleasure. This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. <laughs>